We determine our destination, we plot our course, and we navigate this boat called life. But what happens when the wind moves you faster than you plan? What happens when the waves are more challenging than you expected? How do you respond? My friend Nigel has spent more than 40 years under sails. He's logged countless nautical miles in the most treacherous waters in the world. I spent the afternoon with Nigel and learned that sailing isn't about right and wrong. It's about making choices. And those choices, wise or foolish, make all the difference. Anchoring is really important. And I can remember a time when uh, we were out sailing and we wanted to uh, sit, put our anchor down for the night and, and go to sleep. And it was a nice big wind, but uh, it was time to, uh, time to go to sleep. So we found this beautiful bay. It was a long, thin bay. The wind was coming uh, um, from, from, uh, from the end of the bay, and so we were good, safe anchorage. Um, no waves. And so what we did is we pulled up right to the end of the bay. We dropped our anchor and uh, set the anchor. Looked like it was okay. Checked the other boats around about us and uh, then settled down for a little while. Eileen, my wife, thought that the other boats were moving and I said, ah, don't worry, they're just fine. We went to bed and uh, after a little while, I, I, I felt like something was dragging. I felt something, we might be dragging anchor. So I went topside and I noticed that in fact we were dragging our anchor. And so we pulled up the anchor and we noticed there was all this weed clustered around the anchor. So we were just dragging a big ball of weed all the way down the bay and uh, all the other boats were doing the same thing in fact. And it's really important where you put your anchor. You don't want to do it in weed, ever. Doing it in sand is fine. Putting it down in mud or setting it on rocks is also good. But uh, it's really important where you set your anchor. And we certainly learned that lesson that night. Welcome to Bayview Glen Church this morning. My name is Lucas Cooper. I'm the lead pastor here. We're so thrilled that you're here with us this morning. For those of you that are familiar faces, also for those of you who are brand new with us, great, great, great to see you this morning. Today is a big day. Today's a big day for us because we're wrapping up our series called Choices, Navigating Life's Most Important Decisions. And for the past five weeks, we've been talking about what the Bible has to say about making great choices. And we've acknowledged that the Bible doesn't tell us what to do in each and every situation. It doesn't tell us who to marry or where to live or whether to rent or buy or when to retire or what kind of car to purchase. In those situations, it's up to us. We have to make a choice. But the great news is that God doesn't expect us to make those choices on our own, so he offers some principles that kind of act as a framework to help us make great life-giving choices. And because I'm a review kind of guy, I love to go back and review and just kind of remind and refresh. We're going to start that way this morning. And we began our journey through this series where every journey begins with a destination in mind. For those of you who joined us five weeks ago when we started, you remember and so when we established our true north, we set our course, we said this together, that who we are is more important than what we do. 
Who we are is more important than what we do. So when it comes to setting true north, when it comes to determining our preferred destination in life, we want to talk about heart posture and character rather than accolades and achievements because this we can control. Because this is more important, who we are, not what we do. And so we began there five weeks ago. Great choices begin with that question. How will this choice shape my heart posture and character? How will this choice make me who I want to be? Because who I am is far more important than what I do. Nod if you remember. You remember? Good. Then we determined that when it comes to making great life choices, the Bible's exhortation can be summed up in one word. You remember what that word is? Wisdom. Wisdom. And we define wisdom this way. We said wisdom is taking the facts that I know and the experience that I've had, add them up together in order to determine the best course of action. And we said that the fool, remember we talked about the fool, the, and there's a little bit of fool in all of us, by the way. But the fool has the requisite facts and experience, but something happens here on that equal sign. The, the fool is plagued by FOMO, fear of missing out. And the fool is plagued by YOLO, you only live once. And they don't consider the consequences and they, they think they're going to miss out on something. So they have facts and experience, but they fail to determine the best course of action. So in order... To, 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 to not fall into those traps that the fool falls into, Proverbs 19.11 says to be patient in your choices. So we said it this way. We said extend the gaps, remember? There's a gap between the time when you're uh, presented with a choice and when you actually make that choice. And there's a gap of time between when you make the choice and when you execute the choice. And if we can extend those gaps and do Proverbs 19.11, be patient, extend those gaps as far as we can, we'll avoid making very, very foolish choices. God says that the wise man or woman is patient. They extend those gaps between choice and action in order to avoid foolish choices. Finally, we talked about the simpleton. And again, remember, there's a simpleton, a little bit of simpleton in all of us. Now, the simpleton simply does not have the requisite facts and experience. The fool has the facts and experience but fails to apply them. The simpleton just doesn't have them. The simpleton is naive. The simpleton is uninformed. The simpleton isn't bad or wrong. They just don't know what they don't know. So what's the solution when we're simpletons? When we don't have facts and experience that we need in order to make a wise choice, the solution is to listen. To listen. And when we invite others in and listen to their counsel, we can avoid emotionally driven choices. We can avoid, or we're able to address those weaknesses that we're not aware of. Remember, someone has to tell you that you have a blank in your blank. But you have to be able to listen to wise counsel and to solve that problem that we have when we don't have the requisite facts and experience in order to determine the best course of action. So that's where we've come from. That's where we've been. And now we're in our final week. And you've probably heard the adage, save the best for last. Well, that's especially true today. Because today, for some of you, I'm going to invite you to make a choice. What we've done so far is talk about principles for helping you make great life choices. And today I want to invite you to put those principles into practice and make the most important choice you will ever make. Today I want to invite you to make a choice to say yes to Jesus. 
Now, for some of you, this isn't you because you're just not ready, and that's okay. You're exploring things of faith. You're asking spiritual questions. That's wonderful. We are thrilled you're here. This is a fantastic place to do that, to ask those spiritual questions and to hear about a God who loves you and has grace upon grace for you. But you're just not ready to make that commitment yet, and that's okay. And for some of you, you have already said yes to Jesus. So this isn't you today. You've already done that, and that's wonderful. So my prayer for you today, men and women of faith, is that this message will be a reminder that your life is built upon a sure foundation, a rock that does not move. But for some of you, for some of you, today is your day. Maybe you're going to hear the message of the gospel for the very first time today. Maybe you're going to hear it for the hundredth time today, and you've just never responded. But today is your day to say yes to Jesus. Whatever the case may be, you're going to get the opportunity to do that today at the end of our service. So with that in mind, I would love to pray for you before we get into our topic for this morning. Can we pray together? God, we love you. We praise you. We invite you just as uh, Kurt and, and the team sang for us just a little while ago to be welcomed in this place. Let what's dead come to life. Let every heart adore. God, let souls awake today. God, there are men and women in this room. Today is their day to say yes to your invitation. Today is their day to find safe anchorage in you. Today's their day. So I pray against any fear, I pray against any doubt. I pray against any reluctance and reticence that might be in their heart that they, are know, that they would know that they are loved, cared for, celebrated, and at home here at Bayview Glen Church, and most importantly, at home with you. And today, they would make that courageous choice to say yes to you. In Christ's name, the people of God said, amen. Well, over the course of our series, you know this if you've joined us for the last five weeks, we've been comparing life to sailing. And they really are similar in so many ways, but as I've stood up here week after week and talked about the ways that sailing and life are similar and using that metaphor to kind of help us understand what the Bible says about choices, I felt like a little bit of a hypocrite. You know why? Because I hate sailing. I do. I think it's stupid. I, I hate it. You know, I get seasick. I don't like the way that fish smells. The wind messes up my hair, and I work a long time on my hair. I don't like the outdoors. I really don't. I consider myself a bit of an indoorsman, an avid indoorsman, if you will. Every washroom I've ever been on on a sailboat is like the size of a pack of gum, and I'm 5'9". I can't even stand up in it. Like, and like I said, every time I get on a boat, it's five minutes, and I'm throwing up all over the... Like, I don't understand why people like this stuff. I think it's silly. But do you want to know something interesting? Amy and I uh, once agreed to spend the night with a friend on his sailboat in San Diego Harbor, not Nigel, another friend of mine. And I agreed reluctantly because this guy is a friend and Amy really loves the water. She's a fish. She loves it. So I toddled along and act like I was going to have fun, right? But here's what happened. I did have fun. I had so much fun. I didn't puke. I had a great dinner. I strummed Jimmy Buffett tunes on my guitar on the deck. I slept like a baby. It was fantastic. I loved it. You want to know why? Because a well-anchored boat provides the stability that I so desperately need. 
the restlessness that I feel when I'm out on the open water, the perpetual movement that creates anxiety and seasickness, it all goes away when the boat is well anchored. You know, I kind of find that's true in life as well. We desperately need stability, don't we? We desperately need a place to anchor ourselves. We desperately need a place that doesn't move or change or shift underneath our feet. And, you know, we have this innate, ingrained awareness deep down that the fear and restlessness and anxiety that we feel out on the open water of life would instantly go away if we could find a safe place to anchor. The poet, William Wordsworth, compares human beings to a spider making her web. Wordsworth observes that the spider seeks to anchor its web in anything that doesn't move, but the water droplets that it uses evaporates, and the dust particles that it uses blow away, and so the spider has to continue her search for stability. Wordsworth says that we're just like the spider. We try to anchor ourselves. But just like the spider, we anchor ourselves in things that fade or change and we're left to continue our perpetual search for stability. We try relationships, friendships, dating, marriage, clubs, community, teams. Those are all good things, but those things come and go. A lot of us try to anchor ourselves in personal happiness. You know, we try to drive a decent car, have a decent job, go to the cottage in the summer, go to someplace warm in the winter, have a couple beers on the weekends if that's what you're into, retire comfortably, and stay relatively happy. And while being happy, personal happiness, might kind of take the edge off of that longing to be anchored, it never truly fulfills that longing, does it? And the older we get, the longer we pursue personal happiness, the clearer it becomes that personal happiness is not a safe place to anchor our lives. We try to anchor our lives in achievement. Perhaps it's vocational achievement or financial achievement or some type of personal achievement. You know what's interesting? is Just as a pastor and as a, a friend, I love people, I talk to people. When I talk to people about anchoring themselves in achievement, you know what I find more often than not? That people try to anchor themselves in religious or moral or spiritual achievement. Some of you come from a religious background where that's kind of what you've been taught. You're told that your safe anchorage is do good things, be a good person, do your religious duty. And all of that religious achievement will provide for you the stability that you so desperately need. So you say to yourself, I've done a lot of good things, I'm kind to others, I'm a good person, I pray. I go to church or synagogue or mosque or whatever, and I try to be moral, and all of that may be true, but listen to me, look at me. You know that deep, deep down, all of that religious achievement is not a safe place to anchor your life. Even in all of the good things that you've done, your boat still doesn't feel anchored. And you know why it doesn't feel anchored? Because it's not. Because it's not. Because anchors are not effective because of their size and weight. Listen close now, because this is critical this morning. There is no anchor big enough to, to stabilize a huge boat. Even if there were, it would be too heavy for a boat to carry it. 
So listen, if you're trying to add size and weight to the anchor of success or money or achievement or comfort or relationships or religious obligation or even to the anchor of self, your life will never, listen, it will never be securely anchored because the anchor does not rely on its own weight or size. And when the wind moves you faster than you planned, when the waves are more challenging than you expected, if you're not firmly anchored, our deepest longing for stability will never be met. And we won't be able to endure the challenges that come along with navigating this boat called life. So if anchors don't rely on their own weight or size, they are effective. Boats still have them. You just saw one on Nigel's boat. If they're not relying on their own weight or size, how does an anchor really work? I actually did some reading on anchors this week, and I'll just kind of sum it all up for you so you don't have to get on Wikipedia later today. Here it is. Anchors are effective because of what they're anchored to. Anchors are effective because of what they're anchored to. They're not necessarily effective because of their own size and weight. They're effective because of what they're anchored to. A relatively small anchor can hold a massive ship if the anchor is attached to something immovable. Nigel's boat weighs like 15,000 pounds and his anchor is no bigger than a basketball. I can pick it up with one hand. But that small anchor can hold the entire weight of the boat when it's attached to something immovable. The anchor is effective because of what? What it's anchored to. So where might we find that kind of stability? Where might we find an immovable place to anchor our lives? It's interesting to me that so many of Jesus' first disciples were fishermen. They were professional sailors. They lived, worked, played, sometimes slept on purpose or on accident on boats. And even those who weren't professional sailors still spent a lot of time on the water. You may have heard of the Apostle Paul. He was a tent maker. Before that, he was a professional religious guy, essentially. Read Acts 27. Paul knew the value of an anchor, (laughs) even if he wasn't a professional sailor. So it should come as no surprise to us that the authors of the New Testament, many of them who were Jesus' first disciples, use nautical imagery to help us understand the message of Jesus. And listen, in this message of Jesus, we finally find safe anchorage. We finally find that stable place to anchor our lives that our soul so longs for. But remember... Anchors are only as good as what they're anchored to, right? That's how they work. So in chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews is going to talk to us a little bit about anchors, but he starts his discussion with what we're anchored to. In the Roman Empire, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was around, not just within the Roman Empire, but in all the little religious groups and all the nations and individuals and families, uh, there, there, was, there was kind of two types of promises that men and women made to one another. And, and people really lived and died by their word. Uh, there was a one type of promise that was kind of just a verbal affirmation that I would commit to do something. But then there were occasions when the stakes were so high that a promise became an oath. 
A promise, again, was simply a verbal affirmation to follow through on a specific action. An oath, however, was spiritual in nature. So in taking an oath, an individual or family or nation would invoke the name of a deity in order to affirm the promise. Do you see the promise is here and the oath is here? The promise I just commit to doing something, the oath, now I've now invoked the name of a deity in order to affirm that promise. And there was no greater name you could swear by than the name of Yahweh. Have you ever had somebody make a promise to you? You know, they promise to pay you back, which they probably never will, by the way, I'll just tell you that. They promise to be somewhere at a certain time. They promise that the story they told you about the fish they caught is absolutely true. You know, they make that promise to you. And then you challenge it and you say, I don't think that's true. You're not going to show up. You're not going to pay me back. And what do they say? I swear to God. That's an oath. That's an oath. In the New Testament, they took oaths far more seriously than you and I take oaths these days. An oath was binding. An oath was sure. An oath was presided over and established by God. So listen, here's what happens in Hebrews 6. The author of Hebrews talks about God making a promise. He gives his word. But he doesn't stop there. He makes an oath. And an oath is ratified by a higher power. So who does God swear by? Who does God swear by when he gives his word? What name does God invoke when he makes an oath, when he makes a promise? Look up here on the screen. It's in Hebrews 6, verse 13. It says, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. What's happening here? God's making a promise. God's making a promise to Abraham, and we're going to see in a minute that that promise is for us too. And he says, my word is sure. You can count on it. In fact, I'll take an oath. I swear to myself, actually. That's, That's it. That's what I have to swear to because there is no higher power. Keep reading. It says, for, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is, in, is final for confirmation. See, there's a promise and then an oath. Keep reading. So when God desired, desired to show us more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, that's something immovable where we can anchor ourselves, He guaranteed it with an oath. And by these two unchangeable things, those two things being the promise and the oath, and the promise was good anyway. Why? Because it's impossible for God to lie, but he has taken an oath. The author of Hebrews says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What's the author of Hebrews saying? saying that anchors are effective because of what they're anchored to. You want to find safe place to anchor your life? Anchor it in the promise and oath of God. Your anchor is only as effective as what it's anchored to. So now, now we've got something to anchor ourselves to. God's sure and steadfast word, his promise, his oath, and he never lies and he always comes through. Keep reading, verse 19. Here we go. We have this as a sure and steadfast, say that word with me, anchor 
of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That word for anchor in the Greek is ankura. It's literally where we get our modern word for anchor. What an image that is for us, isn't it? And what a relief. It's like, it's like our souls can breathe all of a sudden. It's like after all of that searching in vain, after all of our futile efforts to fulfill our deepest longings for something divine, Jesus comes along and provides that safe and sure, steadfast place to anchor. Now let's understand what the Bible is telling us here. Let's understand exactly what's happening. Remember that in the Old Testament, God's people were separated from him by their sin, just like you and I are. So instead of having the opportunity to interact with God individually and personally, they relied on a representative called a priest who entered into the holiest of holy places in the temple where the very presence of God dwelt and offered a sacrifice on behalf of God's people once a year. They didn't interact with God personally. They sent a representative in. Now, the holy place, that place where a priest interacted with God on behalf of the people, was separated by a veil or a curtain. And history tells us, not scripture, but church history tells us that that curtain that separated the outer courts, the inner courts, and the, the holiest of holy places where the presence of God dwelt, history tells us that that curtain was almost six inches thick. Josephus says that if you tied horses, one to each side of that curtain, and had them run in opposite directions, they were not strong enough to tear it in two. God was closed off. We had no access to him. We were separated from him, endlessly searching for a safe place to anchor in the midst of instability and insecurity. But when we couldn't make our way to God, watch this. He made his way to us. He made his way to us. In the form of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus lived a perfect life. Died the death we were meant to die. Rose again on the third day and ascended into heaven. And what the Bible tells us is that Jesus did not enter into the physical holy space in the temple. Rather, Jesus entered into the very presence of God, the heavenly place where the presence of God dwells, where God is, the one and only living God. And the Bible is sure to tell us in Hebrews chapter 6 that Jesus is a forerunner. What does that mean? Somebody's following. That's us. Jesus is a forerunner. He's preparing the way for us to enter into God's presence as well. Not only that, the Bible tells us that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Do you ever wonder why the Bible says that, that he sat down at the right hand of God? Not walking around, not standing, he sat down. It's over. It's done. No more restlessness, no more endless searching. The quest is over. Jesus is the stability that you long for. He's the hope that you desperately desire in the secret place of your heart. Jesus is the safe place to anchor your life. So what does that mean for us? It really means two things. The first thing that it means is this, is that Jesus secures our forgiveness. Jesus secures our forgiveness. 
Look at what, uh, sorry, unfortunately, the Bible calls that endless searching for security apart from God sin. And it says that we're separated from God because of it. So before we can access God, before we can follow Jesus as the forerunner, we need someone to take care of our sin issue on our behalf. But Jesus came and did just that. Look what Hebrews chapter 10 says, verse 19. It's up here on the screen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, there it is, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, there it is, that is through his flesh. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Jesus, the only perfect man, the only God-man offered his perfect body on our behalf. He went to the cross on our behalf, all so he could secure our forgiveness. The religious leaders in the New Testament, I love this, they once asked Jesus this, and they tried to pin him in a trap. They asked him this question, who can forgive sins but God alone? The implied answer is no one. No one can clear your shame. No one can give you a clean slate. No one except for God. But he did. He did. Can you imagine that? He came in the form of Jesus to erase every sin you've ever committed, every opportunity that you had to do good, but were too afraid or too selfish to do it, every impure motive, every ill-conceived word, every manipulative action, every wicked thought, all of it, crucified with Christ, dead and gone, you're forgiven because of Jesus and your forgiveness like a sure and steadfast anchor is secure. And now that we're forgiven, what's the result? What's the result? Look back at Hebrews 10, 19. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So look, now that our sin has been taken care of, we too can enter into the presence of God where Jesus sits, firmly anchored behind the curtain. So Jesus secures our access to God. Jesus secures our access to God. So for those who say yes to Jesus, we have a firm and secure foundation. And that foundation is never-ending access to the Almighty God. Any time, any place, anywhere. We can enter God's presence with confidence, the Bible says, no matter what storms rage around us. Not because of anything we've done, but simply because of his grace that he poured out on us through his Son, Jesus. You know, I, I love that image uh, of an anchor when it comes to navigating the wind and waves of life. I love that image of an anchor. I, I especially love that anchors are effective because of what they're anchored to. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like my faith wavers. Do you? Sometimes I feel like I have out. Sometimes I can't answer all the questions I want to answer. Sometimes I don't trust God like I really want to. Some of you may feel that way in your walk with Jesus. Some of you maybe have never said yes to Jesus before. Maybe have never met him in a personal way. And you're thinking, look, I don't have enough faith or I still have questions or I can't answer a bunch of Bible trivia or just all of these things that still stir in your soul. But listen, you're still thinking about your anchor. It's not about the anchor. It's about what you're anchored to. It's about what you're anchored to. God's sure 
and steadfast word. His promise, his oath, that your forgiveness is secure and your access to him is secure. Even Jesus says that all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed. All you need is a little small anchor the size of a basketball and it can stabilize a 15,000 pound boat as long as that anchor is firmly secured in something immovable. So today, the invitation is this. Anchor yourself in Jesus. Stop chasing the wind. Stop your endless search for stability. Jesus has secured our forgiveness, and as a result, he's secured our access to God. Jesus is the only safe place to anchor. And I'm inviting you to make that choice today, to be anchored in Christ. If you would just maybe bow your head with me, and maybe just even close your eyes to kind of block out distractions. For those of you who maybe are are new to church, we just kind of bow our head to represent what's going on in our hearts, that we're bowed before God. And we just simply close our eyes to kind of block out distractions and what might be going on around you. I began uh, our talk today by saying, for some of you, today is your day. And for some of you, you know that already. Today is my day. The wind and waves of life feel like too much for me. I can't find a secure place to anchor. I've tried relationships. I've tried personal happiness. I've tried achievement, even religious achievement. All I need is a safe place to anchor. Jesus invites you to anchor your life in him. He's gone into the very presence of God. He has sat down and it's over and your endless search for safe anchorage is over today. I want to lead you in a prayer. It's a very simple prayer. There's nothing magic about these words. You can kind of make it your own. But if today is your day, I would encourage you to just pray this prayer quietly in your heart. God hears your thoughts. He hears what's going on in your head and heart, so you don't have to pray it out loud. But prayer would go something like this. Jesus, I've searched for a long time for a safe place to anchor. And everything that I've tried has proven to be unstable. Relationships and work and personal happiness and achievement, even myself, those things move and shake and shift and I can't find safe place to anchor. And today, I wanna say yes to your invitation. I want to say yes to your forgiveness. I want to say yes to access to you. Jesus, I accept what you did for me on the cross. I turn from my endless searching and I am choosing today to say yes and anchor my life in you. If you pray that prayer today, I want you to know this, that your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, that Jesus literally wrote your name down and it will never be erased. Just as we sang, your name is graven on his hands and written on his heart. Your eternal destination is together with God in the heavenly place where God dwells. Your search for security and stability is over and it will never, ever, ever be the case for you anymore because today 
you finally found that safe place to anchor your life. You're forgiven and free. And you have access to God. With kind of heads bowed and eyes closed and nobody looking around, if you prayed that prayer today, I'm just going to ask you to make a courageous choice. Would you just slip your hand up for me just so I can see you this morning? Just make a courageous choice, make a bold choice and say, yep, that was me. Great. Great. Thanks. God, we're grateful this morning for your goodness to us. Grateful this morning that our sins are forgiven. Grateful this morning for those of us who know you, even those who just came to know you now. That our lives are securely anchored in you. We trust in your promise. We trust in your oath. God, we love you and we praise you. And together, the people of God said, amen. As we conclude together this morning, the band is going to lead us in one more song. And I asked them to do one specifically just to kind of lead us into singing in Christ alone. And, and, and we're going to sing Christ the solid rock. And there's one line in there. It says this, in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. I bet you never knew where that came from. In every high and stormy gale, when the wind and waves of life hit my boat over and over, when it seems too much to take, my anchor holds firmly inside of the veil in the very presence of God, and I can trust in that this morning. Let's stand together and sing as we close.